You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It is really good to be here with you today. I was out last week, in case you uh, were here and you noticed like, hey, where's Matt? I went on vacation. I went up to my parents' house in Northeast Ohio. When I got there, uh, my dad and I went on a little trip. Um, we traveled down to see my grandma. I had a family member pass away. He went to the funeral. And uh, long story short, uh, on the way down there, my dad's like, hey, by the way, nice shirt a couple weeks ago. Now, for those of you who don't know the story, uh, every time I go to my parents' house, I go shopping in my dad's closet. So, um, because my dad buys really nice clothes and I pretty much buy nothing because I'm cheap. And so my theory is I'll just go buy his stuff. Like, hey dad, if you're online right now, thanks for the new sweater you didn't know I took. I really appreciate it. Now, this is fun for me. Like literally, it's a joke. My mom, I have totally my mom's blessing. She's like, please take some of his clothes. My dad loves clothes. And so this is fun for me in part because um, this is the man that nobody knows what to buy for Christmas. How many of you married that man? Some of you. How many of you had that man for a dad? How many of you still have that man for a dad? So what do you possibly buy the man who has everything he wants, and if he doesn't, he'll just what? Buy it. And then it's Christmas time, and you say, hey, dad, what do you want for Christmas? As his answer is, well, nothing. You know what I really want? Just having you here with me. And it sounds so sentimental until everybody's sitting around opening a present and you're like, Dad, guess what I got you? Nothing in a box. It's amazing. But I took a sweater. Thanks. (laughs) So see, this system helps my mom because my mom was intending to buy him a new shirt or sweater or two. I'm just trying to help out in the process. Well, the reason I tell this story is because I literally remember every year at Christmas, my dad would work really hard to get my mom something she really, really wanted. I've told some really funny stories over the years of stuff that happened in my home growing up. Like one time when my mom wanted a new winter coat and my dad ran out, got her a new winter coat, and she already knew it. She tried it on. She loved it and everything. So uh, he decided to wrap up her old winter coat for Christmas Day, and she opened it and didn't recognize it. And literally, I, we had it on video for a while, VHS, one of those things you hold on your, remember they huge, like you see in that Goldbergs or whatever. Anyway, so literally she opened it. She's like, what is this? This isn't my coat. But it was her coat. It just wasn't the coat she was thinking. Anyway, things like that happen in my home all the time. But always, always, always when Christmas came, my dad would open whatever we got him and we would get the exact same response. Word for word. And I quote, gee, honey, that's nice. And you knew it wasn't nice. I mean, it's like, great, you got me another tie, you got me another shirt, you got me another, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do that, but thank you so much. You know what the most fun is? Just being here with you. Quit buying stuff. Okay, so the reason I tell this story is because I grew up in a home with a mom and a dad who celebrated Christmas, and we did it really big. I mean, I was a spoiled brat. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm a recovering spoiled brat. We did it big. We came down on Christmas morning. There were presents everywhere. My mom was a nurse, and so she often had to work on Sunday mornings on Christmas Day. We usually started Christmas at 5 a.m. because mom was going to have to go to work. And I remember Christmases where they would call and say, you know what? It's not real busy here. Just stay home. And it's like, now what do we do? We're up at 5 a.m. We've opened all our presents. We'd all take a nap and sleep from 8 to noon. It was great. That was my family. But here's the thing. As we get into today's topic, some of you aren't going to have that kind of experience. 
Some of you are going to have a very, very, very different experience when it comes to Christmas. And it's going to be based off your story. And so as we get into today's message, you're going to be listening to today's texts from whatever context you were raised in. Let me just say quickly, and I wish, and then this is a whole hour, a whole book in itself. Someday I'm going to write it. You wouldn't read it because I'm a terrible writer. But someday I'm going to put this on paper. When God created mom and dad, he knew exactly what he was doing. Women bring into the world, men, come on, you know this, right? They bring into the world beauty, don't they? They bring in tenderness and nurture and mercy. And I realize if your mom doesn't fit that description, it's not because it's not in her. Because beauty is, by the way, just on the outside. Beauty is inside. And there's something about the way that women carry themselves that men are just attracted to in general. And there's something about what they bring into the world that it just brings kindness and love and mercy into the world. Women, by nature, are far better with children than men are, just in general, big, broad strokes. It may not be true in your family or your situation, but most of the time, when your kid is sick, who are they going to? Mom, most of the time, except for my middle child who's totally bonded with me, and he comes to me, and my wife's like, what in the world? Then there's men, and what do men bring into the world? Strength, right? Power and connect, uh, the ability to protect, the ability to provide. Now, we go all the way back to the garden. We are told by God that God made man and he made woman in his own image. He made them male and female and no other options, just male, just female. But he did that because both maleness and femaleness and all of its varieties would bring into the world God to represent him on this earth. But consequently, when we get to this prophecy, roughly 700 years before Jesus pops up on the scene, we see this little phrase used by the prophet Isaiah. And for some of us, it creates a profound wound of something that wasn't present or engaged in our lives. Let's take a look real quick. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. This is what we would call a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Verse 6. You've heard parts of this before at Christmas time. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Put back up there, if you will, verse 6. And if it's, yeah, here we go. So most of these you would expect to be a prophetic title about uh, the Messiah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, in fact, as I opened up my Bible app this morning, the Bible app chapter of the day was Jeremiah chapter 32. If you use the Bible app, you saw that too or will see it later today. A fantastic chapter in the Bible. But Jeremiah is writing about the future destruction that's going to come upon Israel. God has pursued them and he's encouraged them. He's provided for them. He's protected them. He's been everything a good father should be. But his children have turned away. They've worshiped false gods. They will not receive his love and his care. And so he's warned them and warned them and warned them through Jeremiah. And finally it's going to come and you get to Jeremiah 32 and we see Jeremiah saying, this is what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come in and you're not going to beat her and it's going to be bad for you, Israel. 
And what happened then is that there was this conquering of the Israelites for years. There was people group after people group. It was the Babylonians and the Persians and the, uh, the Greeks and the Romans. And there was this, I think there were five total kings that just came in. And one after another, they overthrew the other kingdom. But Israel got crushed further and oppressed further with each passing conquering. So by the time we end up in the first century of ancient Palestine, Rome is ruling in Israel and Israel is under great oppression, the taxation, the poverty is unbelievable in their world. 700 years before all of that, we are told there's one coming. And so see, every Israelite could hang on the fact that the mighty God is going to show up and he's going to bring you freedom. The prince of peace is going to come when life has no peace. The wonderful counselor, that would be a reference back to Solomon, who was considered the great counselor of Israel, and he was the greatest king that Israel had known. Their kingdom of Israel had never gotten to that kind of power and prosperity in any other point in history. But this one stood out. Everlasting father? And everybody thought it had to do with a reference to a king and the way that the people would look to a king as a father. And no one understood that when Messiah came, he would actually bring us an understanding of God as dad. And see, that's why for some of you today, depending on where your story, personal life lands, that personal idea or that idea of God just doesn't fit right or well. Just recently, I was talking with a, a young man who had an extremely tragic childhood, and he's in a relationship with a girl who came from a completely different home. And as they start talking about Christmas and traditions, he doesn't have any traditions. Christmas is not full of happy memories. Christmas was not full of great joy and celebration and gift opening and all this wonderful stuff. So Christmas is a little bit confusing as he tries to wrap his head around what does it mean to be a Christian and celebrate Christ at Christmas? Because his image of dad was all messed up. So not to be depressing, I promise I will bring some uh, resolution to all of this. However, I just want you to see a little bit of statistics that I've pulled. Uh, some of these are a little bit dated, but you get the idea because a, a decade or so ago, it hasn't changed a whole lot. So approximately one in three U.S. children are raised in homes where their biological father is absent. One in three. 24 million children live absent their biological father. 40% of children in father-absent homes have not seen their father at all in the past year. 11 days, so if you accumulate all the hours together, 11 days is the average total time that any dad talks with his child in a lifetime. Now, before I read a few more, some of you are like, there's no way that's true. That's not my story. Gives you an idea of why this particular phrase is so hard, doesn't it? But catch this one. If you were to accumulate all those same hours, the amount of time that a dad spends at work is 12 years. The average time a father spends with just one preschool child in his home is 37 seconds a day. 
which consequently has led us to this. Over 70% of prison inmates in America grow up in homes without their fathers. 85% of children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. When a teenager is the first to connect to a church, 3.5% of the family will follow. When a wife or a mom is the first connect to a church, 22% of the family will follow. But when a man or a husband or a father is the first connect to a church, 93% of the family will follow. There's something about dad's leadership in the home that changes things, doesn't it? All right, two more, two more. Christian marriages end in a divorce approximately somewhere between 25-45% of the time. The data moves depending on the study you read. But when a man prays with his wife daily, only one out of 1,152 marriages end in divorce. That's less than 0.1%. Hey men, did you know that you play a really, really, really important role in your home? For those of you on the brink of marital struggles and you've decided with your spouse, you know, we're just going to hang together. We're just going to keep it together through this season because we don't want to mess everybody's life up at Christmas. Would you just hang on past that a little longer because you might just change your home? A long-term study was done by John Hopkins Medical School. It was commissioned by two professors, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Duzinski. I apologize, doctor. I don't know how to say your name. They studied... Uh, they did a long-term study. I think it was over a 20 or 25-year span. I've got to put that in here. They determined that there was one common factor. You're already going to see it's coming. Hypertension, coronary heart disease, malignant tumors, mental illness, and suicide only had one thing in common between all five. Guess what it was? The absence or abusiveness of dad in the home. Now, not to stress everybody out or make everybody depressed by Christmas. The reason I think this is so important is because when we get to this very phrase right here, what we see, what we see is men, men, you have an important role to play, an important role to play. Because you bring into the world the strength, the power, the protection, the provision, and yes, even the presence of God into your families. And your wife, she needs you. Your children, they need you. Your community, it needs you. This church, we need you. But more often than not, when it comes to churches, by the way, women are the first to step up and volunteer and say, yes, count me in, I'll help. Women are the first to sign up typically and say, I'm all in. Because the men, we're just too busy working. We're too busy doing other things. We're too busy caught up in our own lives. But the world needs you, men. The world needs you. Because you have a role to play. So, I suppose it shouldn't suppose this then. When we get to Luke chapter 11, verse 1, take a look. This is in the NIV. We jump in translation because I like the way it says it better. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now in Jesus' day, this would have been radical. Nobody went around praying and starting their prayers with Father. Nobody would have done that. But Jesus showed up and when the disciples asked him to teach us to pray, the very first words out of his mouth are, here you go, ready? Ready? Before you say anything, you don't need to be impressive in this moment like, oh, 
holy God. You know, uh, Lord, uh, if you're there and you can hear me, you can literally jump into a conversation with the God of eternity, the God of the universe, and you can just start by simply saying what you would say to a good parent. You could just look at him and say, Father, now what in the world was Jesus doing in that moment? Jesus was going all the way back to that passage in Isaiah. He was bringing it front and center for all to hear that, listen, the guy up in heaven, that guy up there on the other side of the clouds, that you wonder half the time if he's paying attention or tuned in or listening or if he cares because right now you're surrounded by a government that is oppressive and rude and cruel and harsh and the world is a difficult place and it's left you with lots of pain. That guy up there isn't just the guy up there. The guy upstairs, no, 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 he's dead. And I wonder in the first century Palestine if that was maybe as hard to interpret as it is today for many of us. But Father was listening. And he went out of his way at times, Jesus did, uh, to illustrate just how the Father is. So for those of you new at God and scriptures and Bible and stuff, see, some of this is like Bible 101. So we're told that, that when Jesus showed up, he is God with us. Those titles we saw in Isaiah 9 were represented in Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He is mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting Father. Because when we see Jesus as Jesus told us, we see the Father. When you see him, you see God. He is the representation. He is God here in the flesh on earth with us. We call that the incarnation. It's God in our stuff, in our midst, in our mess. Because he's a perfect father. And the disciples probably like us went, huh? I don't even understand what to do with that. This is how Paul summarizes all of this and what it means for us today. Take a look at Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. This is Jesus. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, before I read the next verse, just hang on for a second. This has nothing to do with the 70s band. <laughs> I have no idea why they picked that name. I, maybe there's something. I never studied it. Maybe you know. Feel free not to tell me after the service. Okay, so <laughs> I'm joking. If you really want to tell me. I've heard weirder things. Okay, so now the whole Abba here, I remember when I was at Bible college, there was this girl, I was on a camp team. This is where I met my lovely wife, Rachel, now, who's at home with our sick kids. God bless her. And um, I get to be here. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm sorry. I was asked not to do that anymore. I slipped. I forgot. Okay, so <laughs> anyway, so this sweet girl, Gabby, that uh, became a really good friend of mine in Bible college, and uh, she was so different than me. She was like hippie, and she kind of did the piercings thing, and she was all eclectic and creative and just beautiful and like jazz music, and you know, it's just like, she was just like this thing that was kind of weird to me, and when we were in this camp team, we'd travel around and teach churches and camps and other things, and, and she would pray, and she would start her prayers with daddy, and it just drove me bonkers. Like, he's God, he's powerful, he crushed you. You don't just call him daddy. And then she would say, but it says Abba, and Abba in the Greek is daddy. But like, no, Abba in the Greek is Abba. Like, you don't understand. It's taken me a long time, a long time, to wrap my head around the idea of a God who could be so powerful 
so distant and yet so tender and so near that we are encouraged to call out, Daddy, Father. And we do that because we are His children. And see, depending on your story as a child, that may not connect with you. But it's because perhaps most of your life you have viewed God through the lens of what you were given as a child. But it's not your heavenly father. He's never abandoned you. He's never left you. He's never failed you. He's never quit on you. He's never beaten you, abused you, destroyed you, crushed you, or hurt you. He's always been good to you. And I know that's hard to imagine and hard to understand. The Bible teaches us even, I believe it's in Hebrews 10 through 12, I always forget the chapter, I think it's Hebrews 12. You know, our earthly dads, they did the best they could for a while, the best they knew how to do, but even they disciplined us to, to bring about uh, something they believed was better in us. And if our earthly dads were smart enough and wise enough to discipline us when we were out of control and acting rebellious, how much more so a perfect dad, a perfect heavenly father, an Abba, who loves you so unbelievably that he's willing to correct you and rebuke you in love. So that even if you experience the disciplinary hand of Abba, it is not to hurt you, it is not to crush you, it is for your good. As somebody who is a pastor, um, I struggle in, in keeping my pastoral role and my daddy role separate. Every time I meet a preacher's kid, including our current staff members, when I meet them, I'm like, hey, I, I want to interview you. I want to know, what did you learn? or What did you wish your dad did different? Because here's the thing. Every dad struggles with work and home life, and the pastor is no different. Because there are always needs in other people. But guess what? There's also needs at home. And every pastor becomes a pastor because he wants to save the world. He's got a Messiah complex, right? At least all the guys I've met. None of that I look in the mirror at, but all the guys I've met. And there's this constant struggle between saving everybody else and losing the ones God has put under my care. But Paul wants us to remember that God is not a busy God. Oh, don't get me wrong. He's actively involved in the roughly 7 billion people in the world today, but he can handle it. He's got more than enough time and attention for you. That's why, kind of verse seven there, Paul lets us know, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. For those of you who may not know that kind of language, this is kingly language. Remember Isaiah chapter nine. He's going to be a prince of peace. He's going to be a ruler. In fact, that, that phrase there, the wonderful counselor, like I said, it directly points to Solomon. It's the idea of a king who leads and leads with great wisdom. The whole idea is we are going to be a part of a kingdom. And what, and what Paul's trying to get to here in Galatians, he's saying, when you come to God through Christ, you have changed families. 
Now, hopefully, by God's grace, your family will come with you to Christ, but you've changed families. You are now with him, and now that you are with him, the king of the universe, the king of eternity is your daddy, and you are a prince or a princess of the great high king. Your entire identity has changed in him. One of my favorite books, uh, I reference books that are my favorites all the time. Anyway, a great book I've read called The Furious Longing of God, The Furious Longing of God by a guy named Brennan Manning. Brennan was a Catholic priest and um, spent years, years as an alcoholic. And he's very, very honest about his struggles being a priest and an alcoholic at the same time. And in his great book, he has this wonderful chapter where he says this, Abba means in literal English, daddy, papa, my own dear father. American child psychologists tell us that the average American baby begins to speak between the ages of 14 and 18 months, regardless of the sex of the child. The first word normally spoken at that age is duh, 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 daddy. By the way, it drove my wife bonkers. I do all the work and you get all the name. All right. A little Jewish child speaking Aramaic in first century Palestine at that same age level would begin to say ab. Ab, ab, abba. Jesus' revelation was nothing less than a revolution. Because see, from that moment on, no Christian can ever say one form of prayer is as good as another or one religion is as good as another. See, for those of you who are watching online or you're visiting with us today, you just need to know what Jesus put forth in what we call the gospel, the Christian story, is not the same as every religion out there. It's not. Because in our religion, if you want to call it that, we found that it really is about relationship. See, religion is about what you do to please this being somewhere or beings somewhere. But Christianity is about a relationship with a God who wants you to call him dad. He wants you to have the image, maybe not of your earthly dad. Maybe you had a fantastic dad. I hope one day my kids could go around and talk about how their dad literally imaged God to them. I hope that's their story. It's what I'm working for. But if that's not your story, realize that God is not your earthly dad. He was good and kind and merciful and strong and everything you needed him to be when the world was harsh. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says the same kind of concept, but he says it this way, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father, Daddy. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. I wonder what would change today as you approach Christmas season. As you see a little baby being born in a manger, you have it all over your house in precious moments or uh, maybe wooden sculptures of some sort or pictures hanging on a wall. We've got this progressive calendar where kids build the nativity scene every week leading up to Christmas, however you do it. 
And I wonder, instead of just picturing a baby and a manger, if you would perhaps picture a baby and a manger that's going to grow into a man who's going to represent for you father, dad. And as you read his story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you study his life, begin to see the life of God coming alive for you. Begin to see God caring for those who are sick and hurting and in need and realize that's who he is. See the Father in the flesh uh, calling out those who want to oppress with religiosity when he rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious teachers of his day. See him strong and confident in the face of death and yet gentle and merciful hanging on a cross looking down at those who were crucifying him and gambling for his clothes and simply saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So that even in his hour of greatest pain and struggle, he knew exactly where to turn. Daddy. Daddy, give me what I need. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he says. This whole idea of God as a father is what it is all about. So it shouldn't surprise us that we are in the middle of a battle in America. We're in the middle of a battle for family. We're in the middle of a battle for sexuality. We're in the middle of a battle for gender. We're in the middle of a battle for all these things because if our enemy can confuse things, if our enemy can create chaos, if he can steal, kill, destroy, it would really muddy the picture and create this confusing picture of what Abba really is supposed to be. This kind, this gentle, this powerful God that God presents himself to us as. In the same book, Brennan tells a story, and I just want to read part of this story to you. He says this, I will never forget a retreat experience years ago in the Midwest. It was a rather large gathering, about 7,000 people. An invitation for healing prayer followed each night's service. I would go into a side room and meet with those who felt compelled to come. On one particular night, the line extended well beyond midnight. And after finishing, I went straight to bed. I didn't even take off my clothes. I was so exhausted. About three o'clock in the morning, I heard a rap on the door and a squeaky little voice. Brennan, can I talk to you? I opened the door to find a 78-year-old nun. And she began to cry. Sister, what can I do for you? We found two chairs in the hallway and her story began. I've never told anyone this in my entire life. It started when I was five years old. She goes on, and I'll spare the details for her sake and for the fact that it's Sunday morning. She goes on to explain the abuse that came at the hand of her dad. He picks up. She says, I've lived with so much hatred of my earthly father and hatred of myself that I would only go to communion when my absence would be conspicuous. In the next few minutes, Brennan says, I prayed with her for healing. Then I asked her if she would find a quiet place every morning for the next 30 days. Sit down in a chair, close her eyes, upturn her palms, and simply pray this one phrase over and over. Abba, I belong to you.
It's a prayer of exactly seven syllables. The number that corresponds perfectly to the rhythm of our breathing. As you inhale, Abba. As you exhale, I belong to you. Abba. I belong to you. Through her tears, she agreed, yes, Brennan, I will. One of the most moving and poetic follow-up letters I've ever received came from this dear sister. In it, she described the inner healing of her heart, a complete forgiveness of her earthly father, and an inner peace she'd never known in her 78 years. She concluded her letter with these words. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name and religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm daddy's little girl. Be aware, this is not sloppy sentimentality or indulgent wishful thinking, but rather a woman who dared to pray and the childlike trust and deep reverence that Jesus said would mark a disciple and in doing so discovered the furious love of her Abba. The greatest gift I've ever said, I've ever received in my life, in Jesus, is the Abba experience. Brennan concludes by saying, I can only stutter and stammer about the life-changing power of the Abba encounter. My name is Brennan Manning, and I'm daddy's little boy. I wonder, I wonder just how different our story would be if we simply realize that God is a father, a perfect father, and he longs to have his family with him. I wonder if we would stop running around trying to please everyone else. I wonder if we would stop running around spending an exorbitant amount of money trying to uh, make everybody smile and happy for a brief moment in Christmas. I wonder if we would feel less sorrow or anxiety about the future. I wonder if we would be less stressed, wondering if God's going to show up or provide or bring us a spouse or make the bank account work out somehow. I wonder if somehow all of those frustrations and fears and anxieties and things that ball up into one, if they would simply melt away if we could just begin and end every day simply saying Abba I belong to you I belong to you I don't have to become something I don't have to accomplish something I don't have to be anywhere I just need to sit here in this place, in this moment, and know I belong to you. And that's enough. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I did some counseling uh, for our family. And it, it, it amazed me. It, the counseling we were doing was for uh, a boys, and um, <laughs> I learned that the counseling had more to do with me than it did with them. Me being at peace in the world as the leader of my home is what my family needs from me the most. So men in the room, let me just tell you, what your family needs from you the most, even if you're single, it's helpful information. What they need from you the most is for you to be at peace in the world. 
Because the more at peace you are in the world, the more you can give away the peace that God is giving to you. Again, think of it like a fountain. It kind of boils up, kind of runs back over. So it's coming up through you and down onto the family and back up through you and down onto the family. What was amazing is in the midst of that, um, we learned a lot of things. I've always, I'm dancing this fine line between sharing, you know, my family's private stuff publicly and, and sharing enough that's beneficial. But one of the things our mentor and, and friend, uh, Rick Sudsbury, who goes here, one of the things he taught us is it's amazing how singing is a part of calming things. And music can create a lot of other emotions also, but calm and quiet music can calm the soul. Have you ever noticed that before? When you're stressed or anxious sometimes, you just put on some soft music and it just kind of has this way of mellowing you out. If I'm writing a sermon and I've got my music on like shuffle and it gets to kind of one of those sad, depressing songs, it's amazing how my sermon takes that kind of note. Makes you wonder what happened this week, right? And... Um, and it takes that kind of turn because music has that impact. But one of the things that we were taught to do in counseling, and I don't recommend you do this without knowing what the world I'm talking about because your kids are just going to freak. But one of the things we had to do is when our son was really, really, really maybe out of control or anxious or whatever it was, was just to hold him gently, literally wrap our arms around him and sing. I know some of you are like, if I sang, ain't nobody calming down. I know, I get it, I know, I know. But just sing. And we started making up songs about how beautiful and precious our child was to us. And I remember one particular moment doing this and helping my, uh, my son to just calm his spirit, calm his body, and to rest in the arms of his dad. And as I'm sitting there with his back up against me, facing forward, and my arms wrapped around him, I had this image of my father, me sitting in his lap behind me, and my heavenly father wrapping his arms around us both and going, and just singing, just singing. And this may sound weird and touchy-feely and girly and not very masculine, and all the men in the room want to run away and, you know, go punch something. I get it. <laughs> but you need to know that your heavenly father is both tough and tender. He's strong and nurturing. In fact, there's this amazing prophecy in the Old Testament. It's actually talking about Jesus. It's, it's prophesying the exact same things as Isaiah, but in Zephaniah 3, and I don't have this on the screen because I literally found this last night, so it was too late to put on the screen. But Zephaniah 3, verse 14, if you have a Bible and you want to read with me, that's fine, but otherwise it says this. It says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. That's what we call the incarnation. This is what Jesus did. God came and lived among us. At last, it says, your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. Well, how is it I could never fear disaster? Because you are a part of the family of God. Notice he said, O daughter of Jerusalem. He goes on. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be clear. Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. It's biblical. 
that your heavenly Father sits with you when life is hard and tough and painful and fearful and anxious, when you've rebelled and sinned and gone against him. He doesn't run away. He doesn't ignore you. He doesn't become distant from you. He draws near to you. And he sings his delight over you. Oh, how our heavenly father longs to be dad. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Two things. First for the believer and then for the unbeliever. For the believer. For those of you who have been united with Christ. I want you to think over these next eight days, I think it is, till Christmas Day. How might you celebrate Abba in your home? How in the midst of perhaps the most stressful and crazy season in American calendars, how might you just bring the calming presence of Abba to your home? Would it be starting your day, literally turning your palms up towards the heavens and simply saying, Abba, I belong to you. And before you go to bed every night, simply saying, Abba, I belong to you. And if you need to add anything else to that, do it. Cry out, pour it out, put it out there. God, I'm confused. God, I'm scared. God, I'm angry. God, I'm hurt. God, I'm lonely. God, I miss my mother, my father, my child, my spouse. Whoever it is that you're feeling the weight of at this Christmas season. But I belong to you. Now for the unbeliever. And maybe just to throw into the unbeliever, perhaps somebody who's been attending or watching online and God's been pursuing you for a while now, but you've not actually taken that step, that next step to become one with him, to actually jump into his family. I just want to invite you into that moment right now. Okay, you don't even have to go to our church, but let me invite you into this moment. God is creating a family out of us, and he really, really, really wants to be your dad. And the way that we become his dad is we simply stand up and say, I want you as my dad. That's it. He's already pursued you. He's already given his son and his life for you to bring you in. He's already removed all of the paths spiritually and physically and relationally that you could be right with him. You simply have to say, I accept what you've already done for me. I accept that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I accept that Jesus rose from the dead to give me life. And when you've done that, what we say is, then you need to become one with Christ in baptism. That's what was going on at the beginning of the service. I'm ready to surrender in baptism, we're doing with our bodies what we've already committed with our hearts. In our hearts, we've already cried out, Abba, Father, I want to be in your family. I want to be in your home. I want you to be my dad, my leader. But in baptism, we say, and I'm going to show that. I'm going to surrender that by giving my body to you and not just my heart. It's not just something that no one could see. It's something everybody can see. This is why Paul says in that same place in Galatians, we've been reading in Galatians. In Galatians 3, he says this, verse 26, for you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. What Paul's simply trying to say here is when we go into the waters of baptism, we are taking off the old garment and putting on the new. It's like changing the name. I used to be known as Nickerson. Now I'm going to be known as Daddy's Little Boy. And that invitation stands for everybody who wants to live a different story than the one you've been living. Here's our invitation to you is 
we're going to throw a big baptism party next weekend, next weekend. You got a chance to invite your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, whoever it is you want to be there. We're simply asking that if you have never been immersed in baptism, this is not like, hey, I did it 10 years ago and I want to do it again. If you've got questions, we got answers. We want to help you. But if you've never been immersed in baptism, join the family of God. We want to invite you to join us on Christmas Eve and Eve Eve to throw a big old party and celebrate together. In fact, if you want to do this or if you've got questions, you can literally text the word baptism to 317-565-4911. We'll check a box. We'll, we'll help you out. We'll get you connected. And we'll get you in the family of God. What I want to do right now is go into a time of communion. And I want to set that up simply by praying to Abba Father. So look, this is weird. If you're visiting with us today, you don't know God. You're like mad at him or whatever. You think I'm a weirdo. It's cool. I get it. I'm wearing my dad's sweater. Isn't it nice? (laughs) So what I want you to do is simply put your palms up to the ceiling. And we're going to rest our hearts in who he is. Abba, Father, I belong to you. I thank you for being a good, good Father. I thank you for the chance to celebrate communion, to eat this bread, to drink this juice. And I remember, because of what Jesus did on the cross, I belong to you. I thank you for being so perfect and merciful and kind and faithful. And it's because of that I belong to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to be here. Uh, In case you weren't here last week or you're watching online, you didn't know, I was out last week. I went to Northeast Ohio to visit my family. Uh, I went to hang out with my parents to celebrate Christmas, one of the three Christmases my spoiled kids will get this year. And uh, so when I went up there, um, we had a distant family member that I don't even know passed away. And so my grandma lives near where the funeral was going to be. So I rode with my dad and we got to go down and he went to the funeral and I went to hang out with my grandma who I haven't seen in a little while. So it was really cool for me because on the way down, my dad says, hey, by the way, nice shirt a couple weeks ago. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then it dawned on me, the last time I was home in October, I went back and visited my parents. I raided his closet. <clears throat> See, my dad, he, he buys really nice clothes and I'm cheap. And so what I do is I go in and I look for any shirt or sweater that he has that will fit me and I just take it. Now I do this 
with my mom's full blessing, okay? So I'm not stealing. My mom has said, please go in and take some of his clothes. He's got more clothes than he needs. Just go take some. So dad, if you're watching, thanks for the new sweater. <clears throat> you didn't know I took this one, but I appreciate it. So I say this because um, it was funny because it got close to celebrating Christmas with my parents and uh, nobody knows what to get dad. Does anybody in here have that experience with your husband or with your father? You have no idea what to get the man, right? Because what do you buy the person who has everything? And when they don't have it, they don't wait for Christmas. They would do what? They just buy it. And then you ask them, dad, honey, whatever it is, what is it you want for Christmas? And they either come up with something that's so big or expensive, you can't buy it, or they simply say, you know what I really want at Christmas? It's just to be with all of you. And you're like, yeah, that's great until Christmas Day comes and you have nothing to open and I feel lame, right? And so I've described all of our Christmases. So this was so true in my family growing up that this has been going on for years that um, it was really hard to buy for my dad, not only because he had everything, but it was hard to even pin down what he wanted or what he liked or, or anything like that. So uh, my mom, I remember every Christmas, my dad would open up whatever present my mom bought or whatever. Of course, if the kids bought him something, he went over the top, but when my mom would buy him something, he would always use the same phrase over and over and over again. It was this. With this really kind of cheesy smile, he'd say, gee, honey, that's nice. And that was it. Like my poor mom, she's in counseling to this day. I'm just kidding. So we get to Christmas and my mom's plan is to buy him some shirts and some sweaters or whatever. And so that's part of the reason she's like, no, seriously, take some more because we're going to get some more. But he doesn't need any more shirts or any more sweaters. So we went out and we got him some autographed stuff. I got him like an autographed Nolan Ryan thing. And I got him like an autographed Pete Rose baseball bat. My mom said two days later, he was still talking about it. Boom. There you go. We finally got it right. Now I say this because depending on your experience growing up dictates what kind of Christmas you look for to and think about when you think about Christmas. The other day, I'm sitting with a young uh, couple. They're dating, and, and the, the girl comes from a healthy family, but the guy comes kind of from a really broken, painful background. Both mom and dad were alcoholics. Uh, neither one of them were uh, religious, knew Jesus, uh, at least as far as I could tell the story today, and he's really exploring his faith. And as they're talking about Christmas, and he's joining her at these family gatherings, for him, it doesn't click. It doesn't make sense. Like, why in the world would we do these things? Well, today, we're going to look at a text, and today, we're going to study some things and as we dig into it, many of you watching online or listening later down the road, I just literally got an email from a guy, I think he was in Maine, who found our sermons because he thought he was in another church, but was writing to me because it was so challenging. So wherever you are watching, here today, online, later on, I just want you to know, today's topic is going to go to some very difficult and painful places. Because you may not have the family childhood experiences like I had, or like some others have had. Your experiences may be different or unique, and so today's text may hit you in a funny way. And so we're going to dig into that. Let's take a look first at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. <clears throat> it says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So let's go back to verse six real quick. Depending on the family you grew up in, 
this kind of passage may not hit you the way it's intended to. Now, first, let's talk real quick. We're not doing a study on Isaiah, but let me talk about what this is and where it comes from. Isaiah 9 here, Isaiah is one of the most prophetic books that point us to Jesus. Jesus is what we call biblically the Messiah or the Christ. You may have heard those phrases before. It just means the one who is prophesied who's coming, who's going to rule and reign. And this particular prophecy, you've heard many times at Christmas time because of this particular passage right here. For a child is born, or unto us, if you are, I think, a King James person, a child is born. We know this text is looking forward to a day when the Messiah, the Christ, will come. This was roughly 700 years before Jesus popped up on the scene. And as a part of the prophecy, <clears throat> Isaiah describes for us what the Messiah will be like so that we will understand his kingdom, his personality, his nature. None of that's really hard to understand. If you're going to have a king, you would expect certain kingly language. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. Well, of course, that's what happens with a king. Um, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. This would be a reference to Solomon. Solomon wrote the wisdom books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And under Solomon, excuse me for a second, <clears throat> under Solomon, Israel had its most um, prominent uh, pros prosperous season of Israel's history. There was lots of wealth, and he was a king, and he was a wise counselor. And so when it has a passage like this, the Israelites would have thought king. Again, not hard to get. Mighty God. Of course, he's going to be there to represent God. And then we get to this one. Everlasting Father. And what in the world could that or would that mean? By the time Jesus shows up <clears throat> first century ancient Palestine, the Israelites have been under great oppression for many generations. I don't remember the exact order, I always mess it up, but it was like the Babylonians led the Assyrians, led to the Persians, led to the Greeks, led to the Romans. I think there were five total kingdoms. One after another overthrew the one before, and with each passing kingdom, Things got harder and harder and harder for the Jews. So by the time Jesus pops up on the scene under Roman uh, oppression, they're taxed unbelievably. There's lots of poverty. And everybody's fighting and trying to manipulate God to get him to do what they believe needs to be done. And all of this prophecy is looking forward to the day when the Messiah will come and he will be king. So everybody thought he's going to overthrow Rome. But people didn't understand he wasn't coming to overthrow Rome. He was coming to bring heaven to earth. He was coming to be God among us. We call this in theological terms the incarnation. God became one of us. He lived our life. He dwelt among us. He was literally God on earth. That's why in the birth narrative it says he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be the prince who brings peace into our lives, but he's going to be an everlasting, everlasting. It's going to be forever past and an ever present and ever future father. And again, depending on your family situation, that may not connect with you. It shouldn't really surprise us. So men, just talking to the men for a minute in the room, I don't know if you know this, but you play a significant role in God's plan. So when God made man and woman, and those are the only two options, he knew what he was doing. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, let's just talk for a second, okay? Women bring beauty into the world, don't they? And beauty is not just on the outside. Beauty has so much more to do with who you are and how you carry yourself. The Bible affirms that over and over and over again. 
Don't women bring tenderness and mercy into the world? When you got hurt, did you run to your dad or did you run to your mom? Now, there are exceptions, I get that, but painting a big broad, big broad strokes, didn't you most often run to your mom? But men in the room, you represent God because you bring into the world power and might and strength and provision. I mean, think about some of the Old Testament uh, phrases used to describe God. He's a strong tower. The righteous run into him and they will be protected or saved. He goes before the Israelites when they're going through their battle with Egypt as a cloud by day and a fire by night. He's called a mighty warrior, a shepherd. I mean, there's all these strong metaphors for God in the Old Testament. It's because both male and female find the representation in him. And Jesus came to reveal to us that he's an everlasting father. But that word is lost. I don't know if you know this, but I think fatherhood in America is a bit confused. Just to give you an idea, man, of the role that you play, Little church statistic, when a teenager is the first to connect to a church, three and a half percent of the families will follow them. When a wife or a mom is the first to connect to a church, 22% of the families will follow. But when a husband or a father is the first to connect to a church, 93% of the family will follow. How about this one, man? Across our culture, there's different statistics. It's really hard to nail down, but somewhere between 25 and 45. I realize that's a huge gap, but I've read two different studies, so I don't know which one to take. They may be asking different questions. But between 25 and 45% of marriages end in divorce right now. But did you know this? When a man prays with his wife daily, only one out of 1,152 marriages end in divorce. That's less than 0.1%. Yeah, yeah. But then check this out. If you were to accumulate all the time that the average dad takes with his child in a lifetime and spends with them, all of those hours accumulated would come to about 11 hours. Or sorry, 11 days. I said that wrong. 11 days. Throughout an entire lifetime. However, if you were to take all of the time that a father spends at work, just work alone, put it all together, smash it together, the average man would spend 12 years in a lifetime in his job. Did you know that the average dad spends one-on-one with a preschool child roughly 37 seconds a day? Approximately one in, US, one in three U.S. children are raised in homes where their biological father is absent. One in three. That makes 24 million children who live absent their biological father. 40% of children in father-absent homes have not seen their father at all in the past year. Over 70% of prison inmates in America grew up in homes without their fathers. of children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. And the list goes on and on and on. Anorexia, bulimia, drugs, and the list goes on and on and on. 
Because men, you were created to bring into the world a representation of who God is. But it got broken along the way. So consequently, when we hear that Jesus represents our everlasting Father in heaven, it creates a lot of pain and confusion, especially this time of the year when some people are trying to figure out exactly what it means that God is a Father at Christmas time. So what shouldn't surprise us, though, that when Jesus shows up, he starts to make clear this teaching about God as a Father. In fact, there's one day that Jesus is praying intimately with God, and the disciples see him praying. I imagine that maybe he's down on his face, I don't know, maybe just laying there before God and talking to his Father in heaven. I mean, literally, we're told Jesus is the Son of God, so it's not weird for him to call him Dad or Father, right? It's like, you know, if the neighbor kid comes over and is playing with my kids, and he says, Dad, I don't respond well. I'm like, look around, where's Dad? But then Jesus is seen, and the disciples come up to him and say, would you teach us to pray? Take a look at this conversation in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Luke 11, verse 1. I got the NIV on the screen here. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Just as John, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. I'll go back there to that verse, uh, verse 2. Father. This would have been a radical idea in first century Palestine. God was mighty. God was Adonai. You barely ever said Yahweh, the name that God gave himself, because you didn't want to take it in vain and offend God. You, you had all these options, holy, hallowed. Of course, they weren't speaking English. But you had all these options for things you could say to God to address him, to understand, almost like a soldier in an army addressing a superior. You don't dare show any sign of disrespect. And Jesus tore down all the walls of pretentiousness, and he went right to a relationship. And he said, when you pray to God in heaven, the one who's over there, you can't even see him. The one who may at times feel distant. Remember, we're talking about a group of people experiencing great oppression and pain and suffering in their life. And he says, and when you talk to him, you say, Father. Man, it's like Jesus is trying to grab you and direct you into dad's chair, pick you up, and put you in his lap. Just sit with dad and look him in the face and say, dad? Dad? That feels weird to say, doesn't it? He's not dad, he's father. Even that has some sense of like formality to it, right? I, I almost wish my kids would call me father because it would just sound cool. Like, father. Yes, son. Can I have a cookie? <laughs> Ask your mom. Anyway, <laughs> I'm no fool. <laughs> but what about this idea of God being not just a father, but maybe being dad? Still to this day, when, when my little boys look at me and say, Daddy, there's just something in my heart that feels warm. It shouldn't surprise them. Paul later, when he's expounding on all this stuff, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. 
God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, this has nothing to do with the band from the 70s. I know very little about why they picked their name. But I knew this girl when I was at Bible college. Her name was Gabby. And Gabby was always interesting. We were on a team that traveled together. This is the team where I met my wife. Gabby was just different than me. She was kind of like a, a hippie in, in conservative Bible college, Cincinnati. She, she had piercings, and Gabby loved jazz music, and she was creative and artsy, and she was just cool to be around. But when she would pray, when we would travel around, she would pray. She would start every prayer with Daddy, and it just drove me bonkers. It drove me bonkers. I'm like, you can't talk to God that way. Yeah. You need to, you can say father, but that, you know, you need to stay there, like live there. And she'd say, but we're taught to call him Abba. I'm like, yeah, so call him Abba. But Abba's like the Greek form of daddy. I'm like, no, it's not. But see, it's about the closest you can get. See, there's no great English equivalent to dad or daddy in, in Greek. There's no correlation. It's the closest word possible. It's father, but it's an intimate word for father. It's a close word for father. It's to describe this idea of this person who loves us, cares for us, watches over us, provides for us, protects us, is there for us. That's why Paul finishes out that section, verse 7. He says, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. The only idea of what Paul is trying to get to is this idea of family. God is building, has built a family, and he's brought you into the family by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that he's not carrying out his anger and his wrath against your sins. Instead, he poured all of that out on his son so that you might become sons and daughters of his. And the whole idea of erring is the fact that you will rule and reign with him. You, inside Christ, are princes and princesses of God. And he is your father. I love this book. There's a book by a guy named Brennan Manning. I, I, I talk about books all the time. This really is a fantastic book, all right? It's called The Furious Longing of God. And Brennan Manning, Manning is a Catholic priest, and Brennan spent years uh, addicted to alcohol and um, considers himself a recovering alcoholic. But in his book, The Furious Longing of God, he says this, Abba means in literal English, daddy, papa, my own dear father. American child psychologists tell us that the average American baby begins to speak between the ages of 14 and 18 months. Regardless of the sex of the child, the first word normally spoken at that age is da, 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 daddy. Drives my wife bonkers, by the way. She does all the work, I get all the credit. A little Jewish child speaking Aramaic in first century Palestine at that same age level would begin to say, Ab, Ab, Abba. Jesus' revelation was nothing less than a revolution. Because from that moment on, when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, from that moment on, no Christian can ever say one form of prayer is as good as another, or one religion is as good as another. 
Because see, all of religion is based off this. You do good and God or the gods or whoever it is, that power, that being, that thing that's out there somewhere who most of your life seems absent and not in tune with what's going on. If you do the right things, he'll tune in. And then like a genie in a bottle or like Santa Claus at Christmas, if you do good, he'll give gifts. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, see, it's not like that. He's a dad. In fact, at one point, Jesus is trying to make this clear. says, how many of you, when your kids ask for bread, give them a stone? And see, you, who really aren't good, know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask. How much more so your perfect heavenly father? The whole idea is God is very tuned into your life as dad, as papa, as Abba. He is totally tuned in to what's happening. He knows he's present, he's active, he's engaged. And while it may feel like he's distant, it may feel like he's silent, it may feel like he doesn't care, it may feel like he's being harsh, it may feel like he's disciplining you, he loves you. So much so that the writer of Hebrews, I believe it's a chapter 12, tells us that, look, your earthly dads, they weren't perfect. They did the best they knew to do. And they disciplined you to the best they knew to do. So that when you were rebellious or acting out and doing things you weren't supposed to do, yes, they disciplined you. But your heavenly father, he's perfect. And so when you experience hardship and hard times, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he loves you unbelievably. So consider all those hard times as a discipline from your good and perfect heavenly father who is trying to lead you and guide you and shape you to become more like Christ on earth. Sound at all like your dad? Is it possible that God really is working everything together for the good of those who love him? Everything? In Romans 8, Paul tries to nail this home. He says in verse 15, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Papa, Daddy, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. In between services, uh, I got a messenger from Facebook Messenger, whatever you call it, a message from Messenger, from a a gentleman who goes here. He gave his life to Christ here, and uh, he's a good dude. I want to be careful not to tell too much of his story. He's got a, a tragic, tragic, painful childhood. And uh, I've been working with him on understanding his identity in Christ because he's made some mistakes. He sinned. And not just mistakes, all right? Like mistakes like, oops, I didn't know. No, he sinned. And it's been in the past. And his wife has forgiven him and his friends have forgiven him, but he's not forgiven himself. And he said, I got this person who wants to get baptized, but honestly, I don't feel good enough to baptize them. Can you help me? Am I? And what he doesn't yet see If you decided to watch online a second service because you couldn't get enough of it the first time, what he doesn't yet see is this goes back to his childhood where he wasn't important enough for dad to be paying attention and engaged and present in his life. So therefore, God wasn't important enough to be active and present and engaged in his life. So therefore, he spent most of his life trying to prove to himself and the world that he is good enough. And what he really needed to do was just to realize his heavenly father loves him perfectly. His sins are forgiven in Christ. Both the mistakes and the actual ones. 
In the book, Brennan Manning tells this story. And I just want to read it to you because I think he does a better job than I would telling it. He says, uh, I will never forget a retreat experience years ago in the Midwest. It was a rather large gathering of about 7,000 people. An invitation for healing prayer followed each night's service. I would go into a side room and meet with those who felt compelled to come. On one particular night, the line extended well beyond midnight. And after finishing, I went straight to bed, not even taking my clothes off. I was so exhausted. About three o'clock in the morning, I heard a rap on the door and a squeaky little voice. Brennan, can I talk to you? I opened the door to find a 78-year-old nun. She began to cry. Sister, what can I do for you? We found two chairs in the hallway, and her story began. She says, I've never told anyone this in my entire life. It started when I was five years old. I'm going to skip some of the details because it's Sunday morning, and I don't know who knows who's watching or listening. But she goes on to describe the abuse at the hand of her earthly dad. She concludes her statement with, I've lived with so much hatred of my father and hatred of myself that I would only go to communion when my absence would be conspicuous. Brennan says, In the next few minutes, I prayed with her for healing. Then I asked her if she would find a quiet place every morning for the next 30 days. Sit down in a chair, close her eyes, upturn her palms, and pray this one phrase over and over. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. See, I know even hearing that makes some of you, especially the manly men in this room, like you just want to go out and punch something right now. Like, this is too girly for me or too uncomfortable. But listen, how much of your life are you spending chasing things you can't catch? Jobs, promotions, money, houses, cars, girls, boys, degrees, clothing, shoes, purses, children, Experiences, vacations. I mean, the list does it ever end? We are such a ball of anxiety running around trying to prove ourselves to who knows what for what purpose. One of those statistics I left out was a long term study was done by John Hopkins University, two doctors by the name of. Dr. Thomas and Dr. Duazinski, I think is how you say it, did a long-term study that showed there was one correlation between five major diseases. Coronary heart disease, hypertension, mental illness, malignant tumors, and suicide. And the one cause was a lack of a relationship with a parent, especially the dad. And when asked why, the answer was simple, because it creates tremendous stress in our bodies. I don't know if you know this, but fear in the mind creates stress in the body. 
And I wonder what would happen if, like Brennan was telling this nun, I wonder what would happen if we would just simply start and end our day, palms up, going, Abba, Abba, I belong to you. I don't have to be somebody. I don't have to impress anybody. I don't have to be anywhere. I just need to know right here, right now, I'm good. All is good because I'm with you and you are with me. Brennan goes on to say, it's a prayer of exactly seven syllables, the number that corresponds perfectly to the rhythm of our breathing. As you inhale Abba, you exhale, I belong to you. Abba. He goes on and he says, through her tears she agreed, yes, Brennan, I will. One of the most moving and poetic follow-up letters I've ever received came from this sister. In it, she described the inner healing of her heart, a complete forgiveness of her father, and an inner peace she'd never known in her 78 years. She concluded her letter with these words. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name and religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm daddy's little girl. Be aware, this is not sloppy sentimentality or indulgent wishful thinking, but rather a woman who dared to pray in the childlike trust and deep reverence that Jesus said would mark a disciple, and in doing so discovered the furious love of her Abba. The greatest gift I've ever received in my life, says Brennan, in Jesus is the Abba experience. I can only stutter and stammer about the life-changing power of the Abba encounter. My name is Brendan Manning, and I'm daddy's little boy. I wonder what would happen if we were to trade the craziness and the hustle and the bustle and the stress of everyday life and simply trade it for the presence of Father in us. That God is for you. He's with you. He's in you. And he wants you to rest in him. You don't have to chase anymore. You don't have to run anymore. You could just rest in him. And like a fountain that receives all it needs from God, you can bubble up and pour out into others what God is pouring into you. Because you're enough. Because he says you are enough. I came across this passage last night. I got back into town yesterday evening. So I was looking over today's message and uh, in my study late last night, that's why it's not going to be on the screen, I came across a passage in Zephaniah chapter 3 that I thought just goes so beautifully with this message. And Zephaniah is prophesying the same things Isaiah is prophesying. He's talking about the pain of God's discipline and what's going to happen in Israel, but the joy of what happens when Christ comes. And no longer is the wrath of God or the judgment of God hanging over Israel or any of us, but now the freedom of God is there because of Christ. And it says this in Zephaniah 3.14. 
Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. It's incarnation. At last, your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, cheer up, Zion, don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. When we did some counseling with my friend who goes here to this church, one of my mentors, a guy named Rick Sudsbury. Uh, Rick's retired now, sorry. But Rick um, really spent almost his entire career working with families, but especially families whose children have come from hard places. And a lot of times it looked like foster and adoption and other stories, but that's not it. But one of the things that Rick told us was when kids are really having a hard time listening and obeying, especially little kids, this gets awkward when your kids are 16 or 25 or, you know, 41 like me. So realize there's a context here, okay? But when your kids are really struggling to listen or obey or they're really kind of maybe acting out or whatever it is, they just need your presence to help calm them. And so what we were taught to do was to simply take our kids, place them in our lap, wrap our arms around them, and we're not, we're not hurting them, we're just holding them still breathing usually after they push through the explosive I don't like this and their bodies calm down they're able to just rest in our presence and our approval one time while doing this uh, we were taught to sing over our kids I mean, you ever notice how music changes your mood? You know, if your jam comes on, you start rocking out, right? But if like that slow, depressing song comes on, next thing you know, you're crying in your car. Makes you wonder what I was listening to when I wrote this sermon. But um, music has a way of impacting us. And we were taught to just hold, hold gently and sing. And to sing a song over our kids. And see, that sounds weird to you, but then you get to that passage in Zephaniah 3, 17. In case you want to look it up later, Zephaniah 3, 17 It says, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Your heavenly father actually rejoices. He delights in you. That's what a good dad does. He delights to be with you. He delights to watch you. He delights to to spend time with you, to play with you, and just to sit and to be with you. He actually wraps his arms around you. I remember one time doing this, and I'm holding one of my sons, and I'm singing over him, trying to relax his anxious little body, and I'm picturing God behind me. So my son's sitting in my lap, and I'm sitting in God's lap, and God's got his arms wrapped around both of us, holding us tight, just singing his song of delight over us. As he says, I've got you. I've got you. I have got you. Yeah, you can clap for God. Now you don't know what to do, right? It's like, (laughs) he calms all our fears. All our fears. All our fears. He's a good God. Even when it's hard to believe that. Brennan says this. Is your own personal prayer life characterized by the simplicity, childlike candor, boundless trust, and easy familiarity of a little one crawling up in daddy's lap? And assured knowing that the daddy doesn't care if the child falls asleep, starts playing with toys, or even starts chatting with little friends? 
because the daddy knows the child has essentially chosen to be with him for that moment. Is that the spirit of your interior prayer life? Well, let me kind of wrap this up in this way. I want to give first some direction to the believer and then some direction to those who are new at this or the unbeliever, okay? First to the believer. I want you to actually practice this week, all week, okay? I know, it's the craziest, most stressful next two weeks of your life. Perfect time. I want you to just set aside 10 minutes, 15 minutes. If you could do more, fantastic. Actually, get up earlier. So you have to set your alarm for 30 minutes so that you can have 10. And you're just going to find a quiet place in the house. You may have to do this before anybody else gets up. You're going to go down to your couch. You're going to go to the chair. You're going to go wherever it is, that space in the house, the garage, the basement, your car, wherever it is you could find, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of silence. And you're literally just going to turn your palms up. And you're just going to say, Abba, I belong to you. And say it as many times as you have to say it till you believe it. So you might want to leave an hour the first day. And you don't have to say anything else. If you want to, fine. If you want to thank him, praise him, great. You need to ask for something, do it. Just, Abba, I belong to you. Because the entire truth of the Bible is wrapped up in that one little phrase. I belong to you. Now, for the unbeliever, or for those who are new at this, or maybe still trying to wrap their head around it, look, this is about as touchy-feely as a sermon as I'm ever going to give, okay? So, if this made you uncomfortable, good. There's more for you in store. However, realize what God is doing is he's inviting you into his family. So, when we come into God's family, we do this by faith. Now, faith is a, a funny thing because you can't see it, right? You know when it's there because it has to do with this calming trust. And it starts as a little seed, but it grows over time. As God continues to prove faithful to you, your trust grows as he proves himself. And he does all the time. And as your faith grows, your actions start to follow. Now, here's the thing. Many of you may be listening, watching online, or in here right now. You've, in your heart, you've professed Christ as Lord. You believe Jesus is your Savior. In fact, you keep coming back because you're getting wisdom from these messages, and they're encouraging, and they're challenging, and they're everything you've been looking for. But you've never taken the step of joining God's family. And see, the way that we do that is we unite our bodies with our hearts. And the way we do that is in baptism. And see, so we profess in our heart, we profess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, but we surrender our body to him too and say, you are Father, I'm your, your son, I'm your daughter. And we do that through baptism. <clears throat> Here at Kingsway, we only practice baptism by immersion, not because we believe everybody's been sprinkled as evil, bad, or going to hell, simply because we believe the Bible only teaches baptism by immersion. So everybody who wants to be a part of the Kingsway family gets immersed. And next Sunday, we've got a special baptism celebration going on. This is a one-time event. It'll never happen again in 2017. <clears throat> You'll catch us. Okay. It wasn't funny, so if you figured it out, you won't laugh. It's okay. Anyway, we're going to gather together. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if there's going to be three. I've been out all week. I don't know if there's going to be three or 33 people getting baptized next week. 
But on our Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve Eve services, we're going to just baptize anybody who's becoming a part of the body of Christ, who's joining the family of God, and we're going to do it in a big celebration. It's going to be awesome together, and I want to encourage you. If you have questions, you need answers, if you think you're ready, we just want you to text the word baptism to 317-565-4911. 317-565-491. Just text that word. You can also go on the website at any time if you forget that. You could literally pull out your phone. I will not be offended. Pull out your phone, your iPad, your tablet right now. You can write it down. You can get it tattooed later so you can share with others. Whatever you want to do. Baptism. 565-4911. And we will answer your questions. We'll get you signed up. Look, if you show up next weekend and you forgot to sign up, we'll figure it out, all right? But if you're interested, we'd love to help answer questions and get you prepared. Here's where I'm going to end this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 27 says this. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we become children of God? By faith. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. What Paul's trying to get to, and there's a beautiful chapter where he talked about calling God Abba, Father. What he's trying to get to is we become a part of the family of God by faith, but we walk in the newness of life. We actually enter into the family by going into the waters of baptism. We leave the old name behind. You don't need to call me Matt Nickerson anymore. You just call me Daddy's little boy because I've gone into the waters and I've come out and I'm in a new family with every believer and all of history, and all over the world today. I want to invite you into the family. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go into communion, and I'm just going to ask that you do this, and if you're weirded out, you're visiting with us, it's okay, don't do this, it's all right, all right? But I'm going to ask everybody to just turn their palms up to the heavens, and I'm just going to start a prayer and hand it to you. Abba. belong to you. I thank you for this bread as a reminder of the body of Jesus that was given up that I could belong to you. I thank you for this juice that represents his blood that was poured out to remove my sin so that I can belong to you. I thank you for being such a perfect heavenly father. That you've never left me, you've never abandoned me, you've never quit on me. And that even my hardest days, even my worst days, are for my good and your glory. Abba, I belong.